Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you today and happy to have a special guest on board. His name is Robert Weintraub, who has just written a fantastic book about the life and times of Alice Marble. It's called The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery. A lot of us might know Alice Marble's story probably because of her relation to Althea Gibson and what she did to help Althea Gibson enter the U.S. Open in around 1950. She wrote an editorial in support of Gibson in American Lawn Tennis Magazine, and that was a big story, and that's part of the legacy for, of Alice Marble. But there's a lot more to this woman, and Weintraub has done a great job trying to kind of unlock the mystery that has surrounded her since her second autobiography called Courting Danger came out. I think it was in 1990. And there's a lot of stuff in there that may or may not be true. I'm not going to get into it just now. I'm just going to say that you should pick up this book and find out about a fascinating life of a fascinating tennis player. She's not only one of the greatest tennis players of all time, she also has just an incredible story. And that's why this book was so much fun to read. And that's why I'm so excited to have Robert Weintraub here to talk about it, talk about the process he went through and how he tried to kind of debunk and unravel the mystery of this fascinating woman. So why don't we just get to that interview right now? Again, the book is called The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery. And here is Mr. Robert Weintraub to talk about it. Hey, Robert. Real pleasure to speak with you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, as we said on the intro, you are the author of this fascinating wild ride. Um, <laughs> I, I really don't know what to think after finish, finishing this book. The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery. And boy, there sure is a lot of mystery in this book. <laughs> no question. I don't even know what to think, and I wrote the thing. Um, yeah, uh, well, you know, we're talking about a woman who is, you know, just to set it for your audience, I guess, the foremost female tennis player from the uh, pre-World War II era. She was a, a superstar, really a sports superstar globally, uh, certainly in America and Europe during the 30s, especially the late 30s when she was unquestionably the best player. Um, and then World War II, you know, put a screeching halt to her career. And what wound up happening, at least according to her, in her memoir that she wrote uh, right before she passed away, uh, this is in 1989-90, she uh, was recruited by American U.S. military intelligence for several espionage work and uh, wound up going to Switzerland to reconnect with a former lover that she claimed she had, who was uh, a Swiss banker working with the Nazis uh, to launder their uh, their ill-gotten booty, I guess you'd say, and uh, her mission was to find any evidence that could be used against him. Now, she claims that she did so and found said evidence in a in a basement uh, cellar a safe and managed to escape this Swiss chateau where this banker lived and made a made a break for it, peeled out in a car that she swiped from the banker and then oh uh, wound up getting shot in the back by a, by a Russian double agent. 
lost the film that she had taken as evidence, but because she had a photographic memory, she was still able to uh, give pass over to her handlers enough of the uh, evidence that she saw to be used at Nuremberg when the trials came after the war against certain Nazis. Now, that's an incredible story. <laughs> it is. It certainly the, is. <laughs> the kind of thing that uh, drew me to it in the first place, which is why I wanted to write a book about her. You know, I, I came, I stumbled across the memoir. Okay. Really, uh, I didn't know anything really about Alice Marble other than sort of the name, and she was a great player back in the day. That's about okay. the extent of my knowledge. And, you know, after I read the memoir, I was like, holy Toledo, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a storyteller. This is a great story, and this is something that deserves the kind of contextual 20,000 foot view treatment yes. in, a, in a real book, not just a memoir. And of course, in so doing, that meant that I kind of went down the rabbit hole uh, of her many stories, especially the ones that took place during World War II. And it was my job to ferret out what was true and what was not and what was provable and what was conjecture. And there's a lot of both and <laughs> a lot of perhaps stretching of said truth and there's a lot of reasons for that which is another area of the book that sort of you know i, I presented a, an incredibly nuanced fascinating character who hopefully by the end you can you can at least understand if she did kind of make up certain aspects of her life in this in this final memoir that she wrote uh, at least you might understand why she did it yeah right i mean it's a remarkable story, and I think the book was the memoir you spoke of is courting danger that and that was came out in ninety one about a half a year or a year after her death. Correct, that's right. Courting danger. She wrote a memoir uh, it, earlier in her life yes. that was also um, you know this is after World War II and, and shortly after you know her tennis career ended, and it mentioned none of uh, this aspect of her life. Exactly. None of the none of the romances. None of the uh, you know, certainly not the espionage. And, and a lot of that is certainly explainable uh, to a degree. And a lot of the reasons why I couldn't find much evidence or proof of things that she's claimed to do is also certain to a certain extent uh, very explicable, you know, given the times that, you know, these things were happening and the, and the secrecy around all of it. But on the other hand, there's also uh, certainly the paper trail that I came across, I was able to determine that she was definitely in, you know, such and such a spot at such and such a time. And there was very, very narrow windows for these things to have occurred if they did. So I think she she did a combination of stretching the truth and also obscuring certain things that she actually did in order to protect others and to protect her own reputation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm sensing there's a bit of skepticism that any of this actually <laughs> happened at all. Do you think these uh, her 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 lover? Or, or that she had a uh, she was married to Joe Crowley supposedly in secret and also was pregnant with his child and had a miscarriage. What's the story there? Yeah, well, I mean that's a perfect example of the kind of things that uh, it, it seems like she certainly uh, made up certain parts of that life. I mean, I think she what she claimed, as you said, that she had an affair with a pilot who went on special operations and was eventually shot down over Germany, <laughs> Joseph Crowley. Not a dull moment uh, claimed, in this book, by the way. You're right, exactly. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that I think was part of what she was aiming for as well. Now, any hint of marriage, any hint of this guy's existence uh, does not uh, <laughs> exist in the, in, the, in the public record or any kind of record. Yeah. It does seem like she did have an affair with a pilot during the war who had uh, the same initials, J.C., in fact, but he was not shot down uh, and he was not they were not married. 
um, and she was not pregnant with her child. Now, she also, you know, I, I was prepared to believe that it was just a complete myth that she threw out there to kind of cloud her her sexuality, which was bisexual and, and certainly, uh, you know, was a, had lesbian affairs. And at the time, that was something okay. that she was, you know, that was worth protecting and keeping secret. And I, I was prepared to believe just that. But she did keep a I discovered sort of late in the process that she kept a photograph of a man she claimed to be her husband. And this is late in her life. And she had kept it with her all her life of the two of them dancing. And he was, you know, wearing a uniform. And when I looked at the guy who it appeared that she did have an affair with, they looked pretty similar. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of onion layers to peel off and everyone gets you a lot of nuance with that, with Alice. And, you know, you can understand certain elements of what she was trying to accomplish and others, I think, you know, she was just trying to sell some books perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe the espionage and, and its veracity. Um, are the crux of the book in a lot of ways, but there's really so much more to the story you tell about Alice Marble, which begins with her upbringing in the Sierra Nevadas and then takes her to San Francisco. A very interesting young athletic kid that has a love for baseball, actually. Yeah, she was uh, really one of the best players in the city as a, as a young girl, uh, you know, even boy or girl. She was one of the better talents out there. Just an incredibly naturally talented athlete all the way around. I mean, every sport she she picked up she was very good at and uh of course none so more than tennis which she began to play in the golden gate park courts there in san francisco yes. i mean this is a uh you know public courts hard scrabble style of play beaten up concrete not the country club you know sort of elite uh, courts that most of the most of the pros at the time not pros but most of the top uh players at the time you know, grew up playing on and I think at a certain point that gave her an advantage she had much more of a you know kind of a mental edge when it when the push came to shove over a lot of these uh, women and her opponents who played and grew up playing in a little softer environment shall we say but yeah. yeah she was she grew up in poverty I mean there's you know her father died very young uh, <laughs> died during the uh, the Spanish flu pandemic to put a bit of a, a modern swing on things and uh, he left, you know, the, the family was pretty much left without much of an income. The, the, Alice's mother, you know, raised the kids as best she could, and the, and the boys went to work at an early age. And Alice really saw tennis, even though it was not a sport where you got paid to win uh, any of the championships at the time. It was strictly amateur, but it certainly was a way out of her poverty-stricken existence and a way to get her name out there and, and make something of her life. And, you know, she succeeded in, immensely in that, in that respect. Absolutely. And you uh, actually spent some time in San Francisco and walked the same routes from uh, up in 12th Avenue in the Sunset District down to the <laughs> parks and got a feel for what the house she lived in. And uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, I tell you, the, the greater picture of this book is that and it ties into what we were talking about before, which is what was true and what wasn't. And, you yeah. know, I, I wanted to write a sort of 20,000 foot view of her life. But at the same time, I discovered that what really needed to happen was, and this was not my original intent, was to sort of insert myself into the story as amateur detective, so to speak, you know, yeah, to yeah. Doff, doff my magnifying glass and, uh, and deerskin cap and, and play Sherlock Holmes a little bit. And uh, that certainly was part of it. I mean, you know, her upbringing in San Francisco was not necessarily uh, something I thought she had any, you know, anything that she was making up entirely. But yeah, it was just all part of it was retracing her steps, trying to 
live as closely as I possibly could and, and experience whatever I could that she did. Obviously, it's going back some time now. It's 100 years, basically. And everything has changed, including, you know, the way we perceive women. So there's only, you know, so much I could really sort of walk in her footsteps, so to speak. But, you know, a large part of, I think, the way the book had to be arranged, and hopefully its success, was to you know, kind of illuminate the, the gathering of the evidence and, and uncovering the mysteries. You know, I think a lot of people had told me that their favorite parts, and maybe this is true for me too, the, the, the favorite part of reading mystery novels is not necessarily the solution, but the process that the detective goes through in trying to find out you know, who done it. And to a certain extent, I kind of went along the same vein and, uh, you know, kind of was trying to unravel all these old mysteries to the best of my ability. I'm not necessarily, you know, an Agatha Christie detective there. So I <laughs> was only so successful, but uh, it was definitely all part of it. And, and certainly, you know, walking the streets where she went from her home, her childhood home in San Francisco, which is still there, not hugely changed, I might add. Yeah. Uh, and certainly the area around it has changed, but you, know, you get, definitely could get a sense of the kind of you know, San Francisco being such a unique and incredibly beautiful and, and unusual city. You got a sense of what she must have felt growing up there. And I tried to do that for when she moved to Southern California and became a real you know, denizen of the Los Angeles mm-hmm. area and Palm Springs as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, I kind of crisscrossed the country, as it turned out, trying to trying to follow the, the various clues. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And but but I mean, we can debate the truthfulness of a, a lot of the things that happen in this book or that that Alice Marble wants you to believe happened in her memoir, her second memoir. But with, what we cannot debate is that she was an incredible tennis player that won five singles, majors, titles um, really between 1936 and 1940. She absolutely dominated the sport. She was an athletic player, as you point out, and really kind of a pioneer of an aggressive style of play. For both the men and the women, a lot of net attacking, a big serve. So, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit because um, you know, we're kind of a tennis podcast and we get into like no these, these nuts and bolts of and the, the kind of the <laughs> geeky tennis stuff about Alice Marble. So tell us a little bit about really what she was like as a player. It seems like she was a pretty daunting uh, foe. No question. I mean, I think you can literally divide the eras in female tennis to – before and after Alice Marble, you know, before it was a very much a, a swing from the baseline, a little dainty women wore calf length skirts, you know, and then it was not, you know, a game built around athleticism and power. And then Alice came along first. She, first of all, she wore shorts, which uh, at first yeah. was immensely controversial. And then quickly everybody realized, Hey, this is stupid. Why, why isn't everybody wearing shorts? <laughs> why would we be wearing skirts in the first place? So she, she certainly uh, pioneered that change. And in terms of just her playing style, yes. I mean, she was really the pioneer, the serve and volley, covered a court from, you know, uh, all angles, hit the ball with extreme power. She's still regarded as having uh, one of the top serves of all time. It was called the twist serve, or I guess we would call it kick serve today. Yeah. She really, you know, hit with much more power on her serve than, you know, anyone who had come before her, even men. I mean, you know, they, they talked about Alice at the time in – this was considered a compliment. She played like a man. You know, that was what uh, everybody walked away with. And yeah. she walked like a man and, and covered the court like a man. And she no doubt did that. In fact, she won a lot of early on tournaments purely on her, her athleticism, her speed and power just overwhelmed uh, her opposition. Then when, you know, she reached the elite level, she kind of had to 
refine her game because it wasn't always going to be she wasn't always going to be able to just completely dominate based on on power and she met her coach Eleanor Tennant whose yes. relationship with uh, with Alice is certainly a large part of the story as well and uh, Eleanor changed her grip and made sure she you know got a little bit more refinement in how to play and and taught her a lot of psychological parts of the game and strategic elements and when you combine Alice's incredible natural gifts with actually learning how to play <laughs> you know yeah. to do it where you could you could strategize points and and to get past rough patches and all the things that most tennis players, I don't want to say they take for granted, but they they realize that that's a large part of the game. Uh, that made an unbeatable combination, really. And then when she married the two, she was as you know, as good a player as, as had been seen to that point. Mm-hmm. And another fascinating part of the of this tale that you tell about Alice Marble is her relationship with Eleanor Tennant. I mean, this is a fascinating character, just kind of a charlatan type that's hobnobbing with all these Hollywood A-listers, Marlena Dietrich and so many others. There's scenes with with Marble playing doubles with, uh, I mean, at, with uh, William Randolph Hearst against Charlie Chap- Chaplin and Marion Davies. I mean, this was like yeah. an enchanting, exciting, crazy life. Yeah, Alice Marble wasn't really making a dime doing what she was doing, but boy, was she living it up, or at least it seems so. It's a real dichotomy. Um, and, you know, it probably does explain at least to a part sort of how she came to her later in life sort of approach to her memoir and how she, you know, how she viewed things because she did indeed live this kind of jet set lifestyle. And a lot of that was because of Eleanor Tennant. We should say Eleanor, the two of them really had a very similar upbringings about a generation apart. Eleanor also was from San Francisco, also came up the hard way, didn't really know much about tennis and wound up, stealing a racket from a, a border in their house and taking it to the Golden Gate Parks, not knowing even how to play. And from there, she basically willed herself into a, a career as first an actual player. And then she wound up just by talking her way into it, a the uh, the head pro, the first really ever tennis pro at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And that was her entree into old Hollywood. It really became uh, the sport among the swells and she was uniquely positioned to, as you mentioned, you know, introduce Alice and to also spend a lot of time with all these people, especially uh, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, who, yes, yes. who became very great friends and, and fans of Alice. And Alice and Carol were particularly close. So you had a woman uh, who, you know, they were living this sort of almost a double life, especially Alice, because she was, you know, being told what to do at all times by Eleanor. The relationship was much more than just coach and player. We should get that straight. I mean, they were especially essentially joined at the hip for a decade yeah. once Eleanor took Alice on to the point where they lived together, they went everywhere together, Eleanor paid all the expenses, uh, Eleanor looked after her, Eleanor told her what to eat and how to dress and how to speak, and Alice even started to speak like Eleanor, who had a sort of faint British accent. Her father was British, mm-hmm. and Eleanor, whose father was not British, sort of adopted that in her public her public speaking and uh they also you know were obviously rumored to be and seemed quite likely to be uh lovers at least for a spell but it really wasn't even their love went deeper even than just you know kind of a physical attachment it was much more they had this incredible shared vision and eleanor's great dream was to take someone like herself somebody from the public courts who was not a not an elitist, not somebody who had all the advantages, but was greatly talented. And then by her guidance, lift her to the very heights of the game of the sport. And she accomplished that with Alice. And Alice was really sort of a, 
a lump of clay for a long time that was just molded by Eleanor into this yeah. sensational player and, and personality. And uh, a lot of that, you know, it was <laughs> that kind of codependency wound up being, you know, contributing to sort of a dramatic and operatic breakup when the two finally went their separate ways. But at the time, there, it was a groundbreaking partnership, really. And you didn't see that kind of thing. You know, players had coaches, obviously, but they didn't, they didn't run their students' lives, their their charges' lives, to the extent that Eleanor ran Alice's life for, for all that time, and then Alice, you know, finally chafing so much at that at that leash, finally broke free. Yeah. Yeah. I often find myself wondering what motivated Eleanor Tennant. And, and I found myself drawing parallels between tennis then and tennis now, some similarities with the entrepreneurial arrangements that some of the coach, coaches at academies, say Nick Boletari and these types have with players and really rely on them for the fame. Because I was thinking maybe Tennant didn't really need this. She already kind of had her set up. She had her reputation. She was hobnobbing with the Hollywood A-listers, as we said. But but I guess for her, there was something about um, the challenge of taking Alice Marble and then later Bobby Riggs, too, which is also another mm. compelling part of your story or this story. And um, I wonder, you know, I guess there was something that motivated her to be this person. Well, that I, could... Yeah, yeah. not to interrupt. Sorry. No, no, but yes, I, 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 do, <laughs> I, I do think there was much more to it. I mean, there was a, certainly a financial element to all of it. And, you know, once she became somebody who could coach pro, you know, from the, that level of player. Um, you know, the, the success of Alice redounded onto her and the failures too. I think she was quoted at one point as saying, you know, how Alice does affects my finances, even just giving lessons. Like uh, there were other coaches around and when Alice, you know, made it to the finals or won a grand slam level event, everybody came to Eleanor and she was sitting pretty with all this, uh, extra funds. And then yeah. when Alice went out early, the opposite happened and they said, well, maybe Eleanor's not such a great coach. Let's go over to somebody else. You know, and this is the kind of thinking that was going on and, and the sort of really constant effort and hard scrabble life, even for people who are you know, at the top of their profession, top of their sport. Um, you know, Alice, of course, wasn't making any money from the tournaments themselves. So they had to do everything they could to not only find methods of extra income, but, you know, people who would help them front expenses and in particular give them places to stay and, and meals to eat. And that often was people like William Randolph Hearst and, and uh, other million and billionaires, you yeah. know, the, the great Eastern elites who, you know, would welcome Eleanor and Alice into their home for six weeks before the uh, U.S. nationals were, were held and during the tournament itself and, you know, things like that. It was sort of, it was really a, an unusual existence where you were constantly being reminded of, how lucky you were in one sense and how little you actually had in the other. And, yeah. you know, for to be constantly kind of, and Eleanor certainly was constantly worrying about money. Even when she had money, she was always worried about making more. And then also that was a, a certainly a, a depression era mindset. It wasn't yeah. just those two by any stretch. And you're talking about another case where they were living this highfalutin, untouched by the same you know poverty that was crushing the rest of the country to an extent but at the same time they didn't have a ton of money to spend on their own they were living in a lot of ways off the uh, the, you know, the kindness of strangers if you yeah. will so um it all made for a, a certainly a psychological stew in their heads that you know would later on come to you know, certainly injure their relationship and also led to some resentment and bitterness in the later life for Alice, I'm sure. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, as we, we we harp on this theme, never a dull moment. But but I mean, even with Alice Marble, it wasn't so simple, just the hook up with a super coach and having all this talent. She had her struggles along the way, and she went to Paris. I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, 1934, got sick, mm-hmm. and one of her early appearances at uh, at Roland Garros, she actually passed out on court, had to retire from a match, but later was found to have tuberculosis and really thought that that was it for her for maybe about a year, it seemed, right? Even more, yeah. I mean, it was, as you say, she did. She she had been forced to play an incredible marathon afternoon of tennis in, in nearly 100-degree heat in, in New York, in Long Island, yes. uh, to satisfy the USLTA the previous, the previous summer. And suffered from heat stroke and, and from lingering anemia and dizziness. And by the following spring, she was intent on you know, playing in Wimbledon that June. And she went early in May to Paris to do some earlier matches and you know, some, some warm-up ex- exhibitions and things like that. And, and played at Roland Garros, not fully fit, another brutally hot day. And as you said, was collapsed on the court and had to be helped off and went to the hospital. And during that time was found to be tubercular. And at, the, at that time... You know, as you say, not only was that a death sentence for her career, considered a death sentence for her career, but it was considered perhaps a, a literal death sentence. I mean, that was not the kind of thing that one bounced back from particularly right. easily. And indeed, she was cooped up in a sanitarium for long, long months and completely lost her, you know, her overwhelming physical condition and, and you know, her mental edge. I was just lying there staring at the ceilings, hoping not to die, essentially. And then one day, Eleanor Tennant, who this entire time that she was in there made a long round trip every day from, from Beverly Hills to this place, which is sort of in the mountains and to, toward the South a little bit about 50 or 60 miles round trip every day. Um, she said, enough of this, I'm breaking you out of here. <laughs> we're having, we're not, you're not lying on your butt no more. And, uh, you know, put her on a regimen and said, you're coming back. And it took nearly two years you know, from the time that she passed out, it was actually over two years till the, she came back to win the 1936 U.S. Nationals. And that was considered at the time one of the more extraordinary happenstances in all of American sport, one of the great comebacks ever that, yep. uh, you know, especially a woman, you know, a soft, quote unquote, woman was able to disappear completely from the sport and, and not even be doing anything. And then to, you know, from the very bottom, once again, uh, fight her way all the way back to the pinnacle of the sport. It was an amazing story. And she became... Uh, really, that that catapulted her into beyond sports popular to just everyday, every household name popular. Everybody knew who Alice Marble was after that, the comeback queen, uh, and the woman who beat tuberculosis to win the tennis champion, the biggest tennis championship in the in the country. So that was just one of a multitude, really, of physical ailments and obstacles uh, that were placed in front of Alice along the way. One of the reasons I really wanted to write about her, beyond all the, as you say, never a dull moment sort of aspect of her life but her mental toughness to endure pain emotional physical mental trauma was really extraordinary and we haven't even mentioned the fact that uh, one of her revelations in her last memoir was that she was sexually assaulted in golden gate park when she was just 15 yeah and that's another thing that could easily have derailed her you know from any of this yes and she was you know an expert at one thing she did that was probably even more extraordinary than her tennis playing ability was her ability just to just to put, you know, whatever obstacles and, and uh, trauma that she suffered behind her, and keep plowing forward and, and make it work. And it's a 
it's a really amazing tale of, of mental strength. So that was uh, another thing I wanted to highlight in the book for sure. Yeah. And can, can you give us an idea of her popularity, of her fame? There's, there's many references to the kind of the, seem, what seems to me like soaring popularity of the sport. Packed houses, 10, 14,000 in some stadiums at Forest Hills and uh, $25 tickets for some matches. It seemed like people were a little bit tennis crazy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was definitely a time when, you know, you also you had the depression, which was not dissimilar from today, where people were craving some sort of distraction from their everyday kind of punishing lives. Sport really did take off, and tennis in particular took off. Um, big part of that probably was from Bill Tilden's effect uh, about a decade before, and you know he kind of was the first guy to really break through the wall and make tennis a particularly popular sport, and then. It built upon that. It got much more mainstream during the 30s, particularly. And Alice had a lot of the, you know, aspects that was classic for somebody who was going to break through into the popular culture. She was very pretty, blonde hair, California sunshine girl, kind of the all-American girl, uh, and was very popular, not just in terms of, as you were saying, sort of mass popularity, but she was individually very popular and had an extremely winning effect on, on everyone she met. I mean, you know, she was very at home talking with William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies and Otto Kahn and all these yeah. great swells and Carol Lombard and Clark Gable, but she was also very much at home talking to the busboy, you know, or talking to, you know, the person, the, the woman she met on the street who asked her about how she had also had tuberculosis and how did she get back? I mean, she was very much a, a people person and a person of the people. And, um, you know, that really kind of translated into immense popularity for her in particular. Tennis was very popular in getting so, yes, but Alice in particular mm -hmm. was a drawing card to the point where when she finally did turn pro to make some money at it, once the, uh, the Wimbledon and the U.S. Nationals went away because of the war, uh, in 1941 she arranged to go on a tour with Tilden and a couple of other players, Don Budge. And uh, she was by far the marquee attraction, and she made a huge amount, and they were, you know, sell out crowds all over the country as they went around to play, and everybody really went to see Alice. She was the one who was the drawing card, and, you know, Don Budge was in and of himself a great player, and obviously Bill Tilden, a big-time name. But, you know, when, when Alice outshone the two of them, that should tell you the, uh, the level of popularity she had. Right. And, and you, you make mention of the fact that she was initially paid one third the amount, I think, of the men and everybody else on that tour or, and, for, right. and was able to finagle her way into getting equal pay, which is a story we haven't heard much about from her. That's right. She, you know, and this was a case where Eleanor had, you know, from time the time they got together had handled all financial details and was very proud of herself for. Uh, negotiating this particular deal and when Alice found out that she was being paid less even though she was the headliner and people were uh, there to see her uh, obviously she was apoplectic and basically demanded uh, instant renegotiation or she would just walk off the tour and uh, she held strong to her principles and the, the people in charge folded and at that point it certainly was <laughs> the beginning of, the beginning of the end for uh, the tenant marble relationship in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, Alice was beginning to realize not only was she not needing to rely so much on Eleanor anymore, and, but she was perfectly capable of, of getting things done herself, which was, you would think, something she would have realized before that, given the wide varying nature of her success, not just in tennis, but you know, as a woman who was a nightclub singer and a fashion designer yes, yes. and was really well sought out for all these things. She wrote 
you know, tons of articles and gave lectures and speeches relentlessly, really, um, from World War II on, just all over the country, driving herself at a time when women, few women drove, and they certainly didn't drive themselves, you know, seven, eight hundred miles between tour stops just to uh, give lectures uh, at these tiny colleges to people. Mm. So she was, a, incredible work ethic is one of certainly the through lines of her life, and, yeah. uh, you know, and she realized that she was worth more than than people thought and was determined to get what she could for, for her talents. Yeah. I mean, we're going to circle back to the espionage and, and her trip to Europe in world war two, which is the fan, really fantastic. But there's other things that, in, that, that just keep popping up in this book. She takes a gig singing at the Waldorf Astoria in 1938, 1940. She gets a call from president Franklin Roosevelt to head up a fitness council. I mean, there's, there's the letter she wrote later in her life after, um, after world war two to get, uh, Althea Gibson into the U.S. Open. I mean, this is a woman that did so many things. I mean, it's, it's really quite remarkable. It is, and it was part of the, another reason I wanted to write about her because clearly she'd been lost to history and, and a lot of those methods that you talk about. It, she did so much. I mean, just the Althea Gibson part alone, we should mention that. We should. You know, obviously, obviously Althea was a, a tremendous fan of Alice, and, and Alice had been playing in integrated matches in Harlem during the World War II, which was another sort of pioneering and, and incredible thing to do at the time, especially for a, you know, a blonde woman superstar of her ilk. Uh, Althea saw her play at a club in Harlem and became a big fan and patterned her game after Alice. And then 1950 rolled around. Althea was out of school and ready to, in her mind at least, take on the best in the world and play in the U.S. Nationals. And USLTA, the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association, now the USTA, I guess, uh, wouldn't let her play because she was African American, and uh, rather Alice had a, you know, still had a bully pulpit. She was a fantastic writer and, and wrote a column every month for the USLTA sort of house organ, and wrote a pair of really long and impassioned uh, articles, columns demanding really that Althea should be allowed to play and it's ridiculous that the, the color of her skin was the one thing holding back such an obviously qualified player and incredibly enough it worked I mean you know most this is kind of like I think in the book I say you know be like Babe Ruth writing a writing a column demanding that the Negro League stars come into the major leagues in 1927 something yeah. along those lines and uh, you know regardless of how the babe felt in this case what Alice felt actually worked and Althea was allowed to play in 1950 U.S. Nationals and obviously from then on built a, a Hall of Fame career that ironically enough is much better remembered today than Alice's is. Mm -hmm. Though whether or not she would have you know, had the same career without Alice's help is, is certainly open to debate. And uh, yeah, Alice obviously did any number of things. We should mention also that she you know, was a writer on uh, the original Wonder Woman comic, yeah. uh, comic book and added these great Wonder Women of History sidebars to uh to each issue just the kind of thing she would do she she really dabbled and had a wide range she was kind of a polymath in that respect she had a, a great number of abilities and explored them all uh none of them maybe were quite as spectacular as her tennis playing ability but you know she didn't uh she didn't disgrace herself in any of the other fields that she took up that's for sure mm -hmm. now now we circle back to your quest to find out um really what happened with with Alice and with regard to her memoir, Courting Danger, and her experience in World War II, and did she or didn't she, and you were trying to uncover every rock that you could, and you eventually stumbled upon Rita Mae Brown. 
Talk, yes. talk about Rita Mae Brown, how important she is to this experience and what you learned from her. Yeah, well, she's certainly one of the foremost authors, and, and if you want to specify, one of the most important lesbian authors uh, of, the, of the 20th century and continuing on into the 21st now. Um, and she knew Alice. She got to know her, obviously, later in Alice's life. Uh, Rita Mae still being alive now, so you can see the age difference there. Um, uh, you know, Alice's story had garnered interest she had always wanted to you know make a movie of her life given the fact that she you know had these supposedly extraordinary uh, circumstances happening in uh, in world war ii and before she wrote the memoir she actually hooked up with rita may in in terms of writing a, a screenplay uh, writing a tv movie about her life which rita may did the screenplay that the movie actually never did come to fruition mainly because they couldn't confirm all the events <laughs> in a familiar sounding series of memos yeah uh the legal department at abc tv figured uh maybe we shouldn't go go on air with this but rita may and alice became very close as a result of their working together on that on that project and uh it was very hard to, <laughs> to get in touch with rita may she has something of the elusive qualities that alice had as well when I finally tracked her down and she, you know, posed a series of questions to her uh, and she wrote them to me, the answers in a long letter. Mm -hmm. Some of the things she said were you know, pretty extraordinary and I think were, were spot on, including the idea that what in her mind, what she thought was that Alice for the you know, length of her life after World War II, the affair that she had was not with a Swiss banker who was working with the Nazis, but an actual Nazi himself. Right. And uh, that was something certainly that was worth covering up uh, at the time, most especially, and then uh, to protect reputations of his and hers, uh, even further throughout her life. And, and, you know, Alice, we should say, I mean, she was very circumspect in a lot of areas. You know, we, we talked about how she kind of lived a double life. She was very out and open and public and was living among these, you know, great personalities and well-known people. But like a lot of those people themselves, she also had a very, you know, kind of secretive side to her life, which may have uh, dated back to the sexual assault trauma when she was a kid or had something to do with her her uh, bisexuality. There was a, certainly no shortage of reasoning behind it. So it was very easy for her to kind of live that sort of double life or live with secrets and, and sort of obscure certain aspects of her story to protect herself and, and protect others. And Rita May was very much saying that that was absolutely something that she would do even for somebody who was a, who was a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer or an actual Nazi party member. Yeah. She would have protected his reputation even long after the war. So that certainly uh, felt true to me. And uh, according to Rita, she said, she, you know, Alice definitely had scars that resembled the scars that her own father had received in, in World War II combat. So, you know, while there was no proof, of course, that uh, she was actually shot, uh, according to Rita May, there was at least some physical evidence that something along those lines may have happened. So Rita May in general was a, a, an amazing resource and somebody who it was not just worth the time to find, even though she was so difficult to find, right. <laughs> much more so than you would think in this day and age. But uh, she's a wonderful writer and has a very unusual and odd sort of outlook and sense of humor and, and has obviously been around tennis a long time. She had an affair with Martina Navratilova, a long time affair with her back when Martina was, you know. <sighs> another, another gem that's revealed in the book. And then you actually knocked on her door to, to no, to no effect. 
Oops. I went all the way to Virginia to uh, to her farm because I had left uh, countless numbers of phone messages and and email. And she didn't have email, but I uh, tried through various uh, message uh, elements and ways to try yeah, and get yeah. in touch with her. Finally, I just said the heck with it and jumped in the car and drove from Georgia to Virginia and you know kind of brought them brought the mountain to Muhammad as it were yeah. and uh, knocked on her door and she wasn't there indeed and uh, I was kind of wondering what to do next and uh, I happened to see that you know she lives out in a, in a rural part of the Blue Ridge Mountains and um, I, there was a there was a post office box there okay. and uh, I had to I guess brainstorm to uh, figure out let's let's do it the old-fashioned way so I wrote up a bunch of questions for her and dropped it in her box and uh, a short time later, she responded with with all the information she had about Alice, and it was the beginning of a pen pal relationship. And her, the document she had quite a, any number of documents that she had left to the email. Did I lose you there for a minute? Welcome back. Yeah, you disappeared. Yeah. Where was I? <laughs> uh, her, doc- her documents. She had a lot of documents. Oh, okay. So I didn't, that was only a couple seconds. Yeah. No. <laughs> I I, Welcome back. Don't worry, we'll edit. I was we'll, broning we'll, we'll edit this properly. Yeah. Well, her, yeah, and she, oh, let me just pick it up. Uh, Rita May not only offered, you know, her personal recollections to me, but she left a lot of documents behind at the University of Virginia that, really helped me understand not just her life and Alice's life and their relationship and the projects they worked on and gave me another uh, insight, you know, another avenue of insight to both their lives. And so Rita May was definitely a, a hugely valuable resource in the end. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, uh, and it's great that you threw in a real positive uh, U.S. post office story into this conversation. And, <laughs> indeed. Very much Save the USPS, that. baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, where do I don't even know what to take away with this. Personally, my takeaway is that this is just such a wildly entertaining, perhaps far-fetched story, but just beautiful. And I enjoyed getting to know Alice Marble, whether some of the elements of her story are true or aren't true. I, I don't think it, to me, it she just remains a mystery and I don't feel any, I don't, I still kind of enjoyed the process of getting to know her and I still see her as a great hero. But, but yeah, of course, I question her motivations. I wonder, as you spent so much time digging into this and finally ended up sort of coming up empty or basically ended up where you started in, in a certain sense, I mean, wh- wh- how do you come away feeling about the well, whole? Well, there was no doubt I, I was, you know, I was hating her for a long time, <laughs> which often happens with biographers and their, and their subjects, especially if they are less than forthcoming in certain areas. Uh, but I grew out of that. I, I came full, you know, there was a full circle at first. I was, you know, in love with her. I thought this is the greatest project of all time. And then as frustration mounted, I you know, began to, to despise her. And then I came back around again when I realized the extent of, of her life and how extraordinary she was and you know, completely separate from uh, any sort of embellishment to her, to her life story she may have had. And, you know, I, I wrote my first book was about Babe Ruth and the Yankees and, um, you know, the, the early 20s. And Lord knows in that book, yeah, I, I go through a huge number of the legends about Babe Ruth and the great stories about him and t- ones that he told and ones that, uh, you know, reporters told about him down through the years. And a lot of those aren't true either. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, this is what happened, especially back in those days, in the, in the pre-World War II in particular, 
you know, it was obviously a different time and the athletes were treated differently. They were talked about differently. They were covered differently. And, and the legends were built on the backs of truth, but they also contained a lot of filler. And I think that's true, you know, whether it was other people doing it for the babe or whether it was Alice doing it for herself kind of doesn't matter in the end. Uh, what matters is both of them are huge, outsized, fascinating, entertaining figures who are a lot of fun to read about. Uh, yeah. Hopefully <laughs> you feel that way. Right. Most certainly. And uh, they were certainly very fun to, to write about. And, you know, uh, to me, in the end of the day, whether or not every, you know, how many people's, autobiographies and memoirs have we heard about over the you know the years especially the last 20 or so years that you know contain outright wholesale utter you know complete nonsense and bs right and then yeah. in alice's case maybe there's this portion of it is is not true or certainly not provable but what she did accomplish is is unassailable and so much of what she accomplished has been forgotten, as I say, and, and most people don't really know that much about her, and I certainly didn't. So in that sense, bringing all that out to light is really what's almost more important to me than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. From a, you know, from that, like I said, from a geeky tennis perspective, I really enjoyed getting to recognize her achievements and then to contemplate the fact that she was maybe one of the you know she's one of the greatest female tennis players, one of the greatest tennis players that ever played. She was a dominant force, and then and then all the stuff around her personality made it so much more entertaining. Robert Weintraub, it's, a, it's an amazing book, The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hair razor. It's a beauty. So I appreciate all the hard work. <laughs> what did it take you, three, three, four years to get this puppy done? Uh, boy, you, you give me more credit than I uh, maybe deserve. Yeah, no, it was more like two. Um, again, I, work, I work fast, I guess, and mm-hmm. I was very single-minded about this. I mean, there was also a period of sort of the initial – gathering of forces and proving that indeed is this was worthy of being a book that took some time to add on so yeah it was a little bit over two years all told um but you know i i, I write fast and and keep going my fingers yeah. are flying when i get a subject worthy of it like alice marble so it took me a little bit less than that yeah. super well i really appreciate you taking some time to speak about it and um i if you want to maybe tell the readers where they can pick this puppy up before we part ways that would be great no doubt. Well, you can go to the usual sources, Amazon.com, of course. It's published by Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to PenguinRandomHouse.com, and you can either buy it direct there, or they will. There's links to you know pretty much every bookseller out there, indie or mainstream, uh, or you can go down to your local bookshop, whatever is open these days, if you can. Wear your mask. Go down there, and yeah, uh, hopefully, if they have it, I'm sure they will. If they don't, let me know, and I will. Uh, make a phone call, an angry phone call, and uh, <laughs> and make sure they, they get a copy in there. Uh, but, you know, everywhere books are sold, pretty much, you can pick up a copy. Sounds great. I really appreciate your time, and um, you, you hang in there. Where, where were you speaking from today? I am in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, one of the big, Georgia. Uh, tennis centers of the country, uh, huge, uh, huge Alta, if you know what Alta is, American Lawn Tennis Association. We play a lot of doubles down here, and uh, we can play year-round because of the uh, because of the climate. Not so much uh, in the last <laughs> six months or so, I guess yeah. it's been, but in general, one of the great tennis cities uh, in the country. And uh, you know, we we certainly have produced no shortage of 
No shortage of players here, too. I'm not originally from here, though, so I shouldn't brag about it too much. I'm from New York, uh, yeah. home of the U.S. Open coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, I can only say I hope that you uh, your next book is also about tennis, or at least you circle back to the sport because <laughs> you've done it justice. I mean, this is far, very far from just your typical six four seven five tennis book, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I, I Not to uh, put down the sport in any way, but the way I didn't want to write just particularly, you know, point by point you know, recaps of her matches that, that, uh, that wasn't compelling and it wouldn't have done Alice enough justice. Her life was much bigger and grander than, than a particular match or score. That's a perfect way to close. Thanks for your time, Robert. And, um, you guys look out for this book, the divine miss marble, a life of tennis, fame and mystery. You know where to get it now. So go ahead and pick up a copy and Robert, we'll talk to you soon. You'll be well. Thanks so much, Chris. Take care. I appreciate it. This edition of the lucky let cord podcast is a wrap. Special thanks to Robert Weintraub for joining us and for writing what really was a fascinating book. I mean, such a pleasure to get to know more about one of the icons of the 20th century. And long before the Open Era began, in an era that is far too often overlooked, one of the most talented players in history, really. 18 Grand Slam titles, 5 on the singles court. But wow, what a fascinating story and what a fascinating life Alice Marble led. Or did she? That's why you read the book and form your own opinions. It's called The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery by Robert Weintraub. Thanks to him for joining. Thanks to you guys for listening. A reminder, we'd love it if you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Just go to your Apple Podcasts app, type in Lucky Let Court Podcast. Voila. It would mean a lot, of, a lot to us if you give us some support. And you can find Tennis Now on the web at Facebook dot com slash tennis now also on twitter at tennis underscore now and of course keep up with the u.s open at www.tennisnow.com thanks for listening everybody take care